Hello and welcome to Innovation, Change, and Leadership from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series. In our final episode, Ryan Tollefson, Vice President Marketing of SparkRock, moderates a panel which discusses various cross-functional perspectives on digital transformations. The panel is comprised of Mark Banbury, Chief Information and Constituent Services Officer of the Heart and Stroke Foundation, Lise Johnston, Director of Financial Planning, Management, Reporting, and Controller of the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and Marina Logovac, CEO of Canada Helps. And now, Ryan and the panel. Well, thank you very much, Jeanette. It's my pleasure to be moderating and to introduce our panel today to get started. So, digital transformation as a topic can mean many things to many folks. And so I'm hoping in today's panel, our guests and I will be able to um, give you um, some tips on what that means to a nonprofit organization and how you can uh, be able to embark upon a project like this within your own organizations and learn from the experience of others in doing so. Myself, I've been uh, in the technology uh, space for over 15 years. I've only recently uh, joined SparkRock to be able to uh, bring technology and to help nonprofits and social impact organizations leverage technology. So it's been a really good shift for me to bring that expertise into this space because we believe that everybody deserves to be able to use technology in their organizations to do good and it makes it really great to, uh, to be able to say that you're doing that with your technology and your products. Um, today we are joined by three esteemed panelists who are going to share with us their expertise on projects that they've implemented within their own organizations and how you could take that back to yours. So first, on the far right, we have Mark Banbury. He is the Chief Information and Constituent Services Officer for Heart and Stroke. At Heart and Stroke, Mark oversees information technology, facilities and operations for over 20 national offices, more than 500 staff and over 100,000 volunteers. Over the course of his career, which has covered education, healthcare, and international development, he has led transformational projects such as CRM, financial systems, and HRIS on a global scale, and has had the opportunity to live and work overseas. Mark is still actively involved in disaster and humanitarian relief efforts, has a special interest and roots in media, specifically radio broadcasting. Uh, To his left is Lise Johnston. Um, She is the Director of Finance and Controller for Heart and Stroke. She oversees the national finance function, focusing on internal controls and financial transparency. She has received her degree in early childhood education at McGill University, and her career has included many years working as a finance lead for an international ice cream manufacturer and franchiser. Uh, She transitioned to Heart and Stroke 15 years ago, and since Lee's was selected to act as the finance lead for a CRM implementation project, which you're going to hear some about today, um, in working collaboratively and cross-functionally across all the sectors of the foundation. Uh, Lise also provides support to smaller animal rescue charities. And last on the panel is, uh, but certainly not least, is Marina Glogovac. Um, and she has a 25-year track record of developing high-performance teams, scaling for growth, and building award-winning brands and companies in both the for-profit and non-profit sector. She is passionate about charities and their essential role in Canada, and has been invested in building the capacity of the charitable sector through cutting-edge technology and high-quality education in her role as the CEO of Canada Helps since 2013. Under her leadership, Canada Helps has grown rapidly, doubling overall donations and dramatically expanding its software and success strategies for both charities and donors. Please join me in welcoming them. So I think what I'd like to first start off with is asking uh, the panelists and uh, what you think digital transformation is? And this is a question I think I'm curious of all your perspectives. Uh, maybe why don't we start first with yourself, Marina. With me. Um, I, I mean, that's a really, really good question. And uh, when I think about digital transformation, I also think about digital strategy because obviously a transformation of any kind should be part of the overall or overarching strategy. And when I think about a digital strategy and what that is, um, I used this um, definition a few years ago at the conference in Ottawa in a, in a, in a for-profit space, but I think it's really good. Um, it's a process of identifying, articulating, and executing on digital opportunities that will increase your organization's competitive advantage. And in the charitable space, we can say that will increase your organization's ability to pursue mission at scale 
and increase competitive advantage as well, because we know that a competitive landscape in the charitable space is fast shifting and there are all sorts of lines that are blurring um, a lot. So for me, it really is a systematic, uh, holistic process of identifying opportunities and capturing them um, in a way that could be sustained. So it's not something that it's one off, that it's you know a marketing team, uh, one trick pony that kind of happens and then goes away. It's a more systemic effort. And um, it's really about asking different questions and seeing things differently. And I mean, fundamentally being willing to be somewhat, at least somewhat self-disrupted because if it's not disruptive, it, it's probably not going too deep. And again, it's, it's not just about marketing because the entire kind of sphere of digital has moved from, oh, it's a digital team over there, it's, you know, we have somebody who knows this to becoming a real layer of reality with its own, you know, endemic opportunities and also uh, something that touches different parts of the organizations, human resources, the, you know, new knowledge and uh, a learning skill set or a profile of the organization, uh, technology infrastructure and resources and the know-how. Uh, data strategy, which is huge, um, uh, social business strategy, channel strategy, content strategy. So I think there is a need when we talk about this to also talk about defragmentation of the approach to you know the digital, um, and to really you know set things up so that it's generative rather than reactive. One thing that I see a lot is reactivity. There is a loss of reactivity, which I understand because it's very compelling and easy to be incredibly reactive when things are happening at the incredible uh, speed and we can barely even just evaluate what's happening. So there is this kind of, I need to do that too, I need to be there, I need to launch this app, I need to do, but that's all not, for me, you know, transformation that actually can uh, catapult organization in a whole different sphere of capturing opportunities in a sustainable way. So Marina, you used two words in that response that I don't often hear together when it comes to nonprofit transformation. One is competitive advantage, and and also another is um, sustainability. I mean, I hear that a lot. But how maybe Mark or Elise, when it comes to digital transformation in nonprofits, what does that mean to you um, in transforming a nonprofit? Um, for me, it's it's about putting the constituent at the center of what we do. Uh, this is the CIO saying that digital transformation isn't about technology first, just like saying F1 racing isn't about the racing car. It's about everything that goes around it and what your end purpose is actually going to be. So at Heart and Stroke, one of our, our strategies going forward is, as part of our new strategic plan is very much putting the constituent at the center and being able to deal with the constituent in a unique way. A constituent being a donor, an advocate, could be a volunteer for the organization, could be a board member. And being able to respond to their needs, to what they want to get out of the organization, and bringing then the tools to be able to, uh, um, to a, a platform and tools to be able to support what that actually means for the constituent. I mean, that's huge. And when you talk about competitive advantage then, mm -hmm. that's what then will start to make not-for-profits who still deal with the masses versus not-for-profits that start to create more individualized experiences. We all expect individual experiences in our lives now. When you go on Amazon, if you're a regular Amazon orderer, you want one-click ordering. If I took one-click ordering away from you, you would riot in this room, I'm sure. And you know what? Our constituents are asking for, wait a minute, I've donated to you for the last 15 years. Why do you not know I only donate once a year? This is the average amount I donate. I want it to go to this particular program. So it's about putting the constituent um, in, the, in the center of what we do. Um, and aside from uh, talking to strategy, when you drop down to actually how digital uh, trends help within the infrastructure of an organization, uh, being nonprofits and charities, it's, it's almost um, motherhood and apple pie, but t uh, to apply a digital lens uh, increases the eff effectiveness and efficiency of organizations, but um, and it maximizes donor and member dollars. Um, so it, it incorporates technology to assist and sometimes to drive the outcomes of the efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, 
the, the, uh, this requires not only investment in the technical solutions, but what, what I've found in, putting, in helping put in a system that we'll hear more about is the training of the people to use yeah. the digital systems and to not just train at the onset, but the continual application of that and hire the right people to be able to sustain in that training as well. That this is so true. We find uh, we, at SparkRock, our clients, the change is not about technology. I mean, technology, you need to have good technology, but it's about really getting your uh, employees, your stakeholders to uh, embrace the technology and get the most out of it and, and guiding people to it. It's, it's, a, it's a people management process, right, through any kind of a technological change. And the, the fact that you uh, focus on constituents is very interesting. I mean, it's, it's a different type of market, but you're in competition for constituent dollars, uh, constituent awareness, and their eyeballs, probably even more so than some uh, private sector organizations. So very interesting. Um, that probably was the reason, Martha, you decided to undertake a CRM uh, transformational Indeed. project. Indeed, yeah, we did. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, that project and, uh, and go Great. ahead. Yeah, thank you. You throw the uh, slides up, please. I've got a few slides I wanted to take you through. Um, to, uh, to let you know how we uh, ran through this project. Now, for those of you um, that know Heart and Stroke, you would assume that um, we are very digitally integrated in the organization. For those of you that have participated here in Toronto <coughs> in the Ride for Heart, we have 99.5% of all participants only interact with us online in that event. So that's fantastic. No paper pledge forms, very little cash to actually handle. Everything is, is actually done um, online. So you would think, you know, that would go through the whole business. But we know in the back room or in, in the room that's here, you're all back office people, or the majority of you are. And you know that the fundraisers like to come up with new programs that do unique things. And, oh, we'll just set up a database to do this. Or we'll sign up with a supplier to do something different here. And our job is to be able to bring all that together. Well, Heart and Stroke back in 2011 went through a process called unification. And at that time, Heart and Stroke was a number of different entities, 10 or more, across the country, and everybody was making their own choices on the software they were using, on how they were structuring their data in that software, and then the back office processes that were associated with that. We launched a project back in 2015 when I joined Heart and Stroke to be able to start to unify across the country all of our back-end systems to be ready for digital transformation. We didn't stop our marketing teams from doing innovative things, but we said we need to be able to get the base actually right. And you know, four common um, areas, I'm sure any of you can relate to these in your organization, and the challenges that you have around things like unified reporting, or making sure we move to donor-driven cultures, how we create efficient processes in our organization, and how we actually get commonality across our fundraising programs. You know, a program like Jump Rope for Heart, which I'm sure most people know in the room, this is where the kids in the schools are doing the skipping ropes, Happens all across the country, over 3,000 schools a year, actually close to 4,000 schools now. And you would think that that program was exactly the same the way it was run in PEI as it was run in British Columbia. No, you had regional variances and differences on how those programs were run. So it was important that we started to align our processes through this as well. We made sure that we had some common project principles before we launched this. And this doesn't just apply to CRM, it should apply to anything you actually do. <clears throat> in your organization. And you know, if there's one slide you take away and you take back to the organization, this was our guiding principles that we had. You know, data belonged to the organization. It didn't belong to a team or a program or a fundraising department or a province or a regional office. It was actually owned by the organization. Um, that, that our data will be maintained <coughs> in one system. That we'll think about new ways of doing things and changing what we actually do that we won't actually go, you know what, this is a great piece of software, but we're really used to doing it this way, so we're going to go out and rewrite the software to make it work the way that we work. Uh-uh. We'll configure, we won't customize what we actually do. And finally, we, uh, we mentioned that, and you know, Lisa's mentioned, and Rena has mentioned, our employees, making sure that they could actually use the software in a way that um, would be able to, to allow them to do their jobs and make the most efficient use of it. So this is just sort of the scope. We actually had 33 different databases across the country. You said, Mark, there was 10 entities. Yes, but within each entity, people made individual decisions that major gifts would use this software, and the community team would use this software, and so on. So when we came to a data transformation and having to bring all this in, we had 16 different applications across these 10 entities, and we moved it all over to one national core system with six different applications that were associated with that. 
Now, I know that's an eye chart for everybody. I'm going to zoom in on one thing. And for those of you that are finance people in the room, this, um, you know, I'm pulling the curtain back on heart and stroke here. If you look at the very bottom box, bottom middle, it says receipt um, insurance should be issuance. 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 Um, there are 10 different entities prior to the conversion that were issuing receipts, tax receipts for heart and stroke. So a donor would call in and say, I need to get a replacement tax receipt. And we'd go, oh, well, what program did you give to? Because we need to be able to trace you down because you're sitting in a unique database. That we're now getting rid of in the organization. And that caused um, headaches and consternation, certainly for our finance team and for our fundraising teams across the country. You know, we're, we're moving to a much more integrated environment now where one set of websites and one set of online fundraising tools interact with the core CRM system called OneCRM. We bring our vendor files into that um, um, uh, database. We have all of our offline donation processing, which we've now set up centralized processing in Winnipeg and in Montreal that is actually handling our offline. We used to, again, sprinkle it across the country, which meant everybody did it slightly differently. We've brought it together to be able to nationalize it. And then being able to get reporting out of data warehousing, and of course, from a finance perspective, making sure all of this talks back to our Dynamics GP side. Now, the important thing, we're going to talk more about this, right, Ryan, on getting, getting more people involved than just the IT yes. team of the finance team <clears throat> to make this happen. And what you'll see, and I'm going to ask Lise to talk about this, this was our structure for the project. And you don't see there that just says there's IT and there's development. There is finance, there's, there's the community team, there's the mission team, there's the human resources team, there's the marketing communications team. Lise, talk to us about that yeah. process so, and how you yeah. were involved in it. Thanks, Mark. Um, and I'm hoping this does resonate with some of you that may be thinking of putting a system like this in. Um, the role of finance throughout this project was a very small one. It was big to myself and my team, but we were part of a large collaborative group that included not just IT, but marketing, administration, and development. So we had uh, uh, the fundraising teams at the table, too. So um, it was usually a drag for us to be at the table, because we have to talk about things like compliance, tax receiving, <laughs> the things that accountants are known for. But we are, the ones of us that are in that, love talking about it. I have a colleague in the room who's the first one to stand up and say accounting is, is fun. Uh, we have risk, we have reporting, and um, so, and with what Mark said about the tax receipting being issued from a million different databases, it, it does make you have sleepless nights when you know CRA is around the corner. So, um, so we had represented, representation from all levels, and these, it, the design and rollout of this system took probably a, over a year, I would say, a year and a half before yep. we went live with our very first province. Um, one of the most critical components was to ensure that the incoming data that would be, we'd be receiving through the CRM uh, system through our constituents would marry up with the information that we would be receiving through the finance system. So I always think of a funnel going through a tunnel and then to our side, not that we should be one happy family, but finance kind of stands alone over here. Um, tying together the revenue and the cash uh, together for our, for our reports. One of the things that's extremely important is the linkage between those two, in my mind, is the appeal coding on the side of CRM and what we have as our chart of accounts on the finance side. Those two have to speak the same language and, and that's where the, uh, and when we get down a little further in, the, in, the, in this, this segment, uh, talking about how we would best do that, but that is the most important thing, I think. And, um, and then we still continue to have, we've gone live, but we have to continue to have these conversations so that we continue to improve on all the components of making sure that the information going through from the constituent side lands properly on our side. So it's no longer that individual departments can actually make their own decisions of, oh, I'm launching this new program. I'll just go and talk to finance and, and things will be great. We'll just connect it up there. This is about a national system where everything actually rolls in. Briefly, the biggest, um, the biggest contributor to success in the project was the communications approach that we had. Making sure that people were being actively engaged in the, in the process 
making sure that they were being heard in the process, making sure that their processes were actually being incorporated, or that they were being told what the new processes would actually be. So we were doing things like posters across the country. We produced a number of videos that we used with staff to be able to show them why this change was actually occurring, and we continue to do that. So this is the basis of our digital transformation. Where are we going next? Well, I can tell you right now, we have roughly 6.8 million Canadians, unique Canadians, individuals sitting in our database. So that's a pretty hefty national database of people who have interacted with us. We have about 250,000 to 300,000 um, organizations sitting in that database that, that we interact with. So we have a very strong base to start with. We've done data modeling on that 6.8 million already because for the first time we can see here are all the programs and here are all the touch points that those individuals actually interact with us. Very quickly, i.e. in the next three months, we're going to be integrating our website. So, uh, and you say, well, wait a minute, website donations? Is that already integrated? Well, I mean the website that you browse so that we look at browsing history of the individuals coming. Think Facebook. If you want to go to the extreme, think Cambridge Analytica, that we know what's being clicked on. So if you're coming to our website and you're only clicking on articles about heart disease, why are we going to reach out to you and talk to you about stroke? We're going to talk to you about heart disease. So we're going to start tracking that back where we can tie it back to an individual or an email address and be able to offer up, you know, whether, it, whether it's ads on, uh, on Google or Facebook or whatever the case may be. So that sort of integration will start. But we're also asking donors those questions. What brought you to us? You know, are you personally impacted by our disease? Are you caring for someone? So that we can start to offer the resources to those individuals that are actually appropriate. So that's, you know, we've, we've started with CRM. It's the start of the journey. Talk to me a year from now, and I'll tell you how much farther we've gotten on the website <coughs> side, tying all that in and, and getting more customized. Right? That's great, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a great presentation. Um, what I really found that both of you touched on is something that we find um, a lot. Uh, that at the technology level, I mean, we've talked a lot about the fact that people uh, really what need to get involved in the change. But at the technology level, it is about integrated data and allowing um, your um, employees as well as your stakeholders use the data for making better decisions and, uh, and mitigating risk in the organization. Yeah. Um, and so I think that your use case of integrating the CRM with uh, the ERP, like you have, is really kind of the holy grail uh, of digital transformation for a nonprofit organization from getting and informing the back office. That's really job well done. Um, but uh, you're a relatively large organization um, compared to some uh, nonprofits and charities. Absolutely. And so I wanted to turn to Marina for a bit to see how you think some of the smaller organizations and nonprofits and membership organizations can start to down this journey and what, what unique challenges they might face? Um, it's a good question. And um, we, uh, we build software and do a lots of learning and education and training for smaller charities. Uh, we have over 20,000 charities that are using our platform and 30, 40 are coming in every week. Uh, so we must be doing something good. Uh, but I personally have visited hundreds of smaller charities across Canada in the last six years that I've been uh, at the helm of Canada Helps. And I think the smaller charities, again, this line is a bit kind of blurry. I think, I think the issue of digital transformation will be it's challenging for everyone. I mean, I come from the media industry and, uh, you know, big publishers. We all went through, you know, lots of chaos and change um, when the digital era came. It really changed uh, business models, you know, new ways of, of, of doing things emerged that, you know, we dismissed at first, you know, as like they're not going to stick around, and they did. Um, so when I look at smaller charities, I think they find themselves in a somewhat of a you know paradoxical uh, point, and that is because you know while it's true that the digital era and you know where consumers or donors are, uh, technology is democratizing access to opportunities for everyone in the way that we didn't ever see before, and it's definitely enabling. 
smaller player, players to, uh, you know, to use the same type of technology and access as the bigger ones, as the barriers to entry due to technology and advance of new programming languages are really uh, being reduced. At the same time, the know-how, the, the access to know-how is difficult, right? And so I would say that smaller charities probably have more opportunities than ever, but it's kind of sitting behind that, the know-how wall, which means that they, uh, you know, they, uh, they need to develop the digital capacity first, and you're looking at the organizations that for the most part don't have the capacity because they have been, you know, gone through decades of, you know, surviving from program to program and not really funding any internal capacity in any significant way. And all of a sudden, it is about a capacity. It's not about launching an app. Sure, they can launch an app. Well, that's not going to do anything. That's, you know, maybe something that will have, could be cool, could be cute, could have limited success, but it's, it's fundamentally not going to transform that organization. So smaller charities absolutely have to invest into their capacity to think digitally and to take advantage of the opportunities that in this era they do have access to uh, because there is definitely um, a democratization. And at the same time, and I think this is really, you know, this is definitely my challenge at Canada Helps. I think it's the challenge for everyone, small or big, that the same, the same skill set uh, whether it's in, I mean, there is definitely an asymmetry of understanding of technology that is generational, that is roles-based, that is vocational, but I think in this era, everybody is competing for the talent that also the for-profit world needs badly and is highly sought after. So, you know, this skill set is not easy to obtain, right? It's not, these people are expensive. People who understand this and who can maybe, you know, seed a new culture or well, Shopify wants them and LinkedIn wants them and all the, you know, the for-profit and other bigger companies who are also trying to do the same thing want them. So I think they will be, uh, they will be the, these will be the unique challenges in the smaller, smaller organizations. And, you know, another thing that I think it's also cuts across smaller, medium and bigger organization is that the organizational models that we have, the old, you know, more hierarchical structure organizational models are at odds at the scope of change and the opportunity to actually uh, reinvent the business model. And, you know, when I look at, I studied organizational development, so when I look at, well, why? What's in, how do you change this or, or how do you do this? I think the the heart and stroke is a good example because you definitely, one thing that you can do is you need to create mechanisms of collaboration that really cut across different teams and different levels of hierarchy because in many ways it's about creating a more agile environment. And what is an agile environment? The agile environment is an environment in which you're closer to the opportunities and you can move quickly i.e. it's not something that some strategy group observes and then two years later it's actually happening. In the world today, and definitely in the for-profit, the strategy and operations have come very close together, and the operational insights are very close to strategic thinking. They're no longer like two, you know, things separated by layers and layers and layers. So, and that is why I think so few organizations, unless they're very deliberate and conscious about this, especially about communication, struggle to take advantage of opportunities because they don't operate in that uh, agile environment. I think access to expertise, um, whether it's small or big, I think it's, uh, it's probably more pointed with smaller organizations. I think it's a, a general challenge with uh, nonprofit and publicly funded organizations. So um, I, I'd be interested in some of the, um, the ways that your organizations or your clients' organizations have been able to try to um, mitigate uh, that access to expertise. Are, are there any things that you, like, f 
for example, uh, forming coalitions. I've, um, we, yep. have, we have smaller companies that do this, and as well as, what, what have you seen um, as some of the coping mechanisms? Yeah, so clearly um, getting a mixture of the staff that you need inside and getting the staff on demand that, that you need. So if you're going to do big projects like this, big significant changes, whether it's ERP or CRM or an HRIS, there's going to be a certain percentage of the staff that you're going to hire from the marketplace for that expertise. It's expertise you need during the project phase. Perhaps it's different expertise during the planning phase than what you actually need during the implementation, and then a different set of people that you actually need during the training phase. Um, that, that's absolutely key. Also making sure that you're partnering with a good vendor that has a good ecosystem. Right? There's, there's lots of vendors out there. Um, and it may look attractive as far as price and, you know, the software looks okay, but it's a one or two person shop. Right. And then when you actually have a problem, you know, then you're in a queue with other people to get things fixed. So making sure that, that you're working with, with a vendor or a vendor, vendor ecosystem that's supported by others that will actually be able to let you get out in the marketplace and find the right, right talent. Mark, and just to add to that, I think that uh, the ecosystem is a really good add because one of the benefits of being a nonprofit organization is you have access to programs that companies, other companies uh, don't. Uh, in the Microsoft space, which I'm familiar with, there's Tech for Social Impact, there's yeah. through TechSoup, uh, tech uh, the ability to get very good uh, prices for some of the software that enterprise clients um, need to, to pay a lot of mo more money for. On the other hand, it doesn't change the implementation process and your need to be able to have access to expertise. And so those are the areas where you have someone who, who has experience with nonprofit organizations and change projects would be helpful. So, um, Marina, in some of your clients, or anyone actually, if you could, if you have expertise in this area, how are people ex uh, getting access to resources when they don't have the budget necessarily? I'll give one example before you guys uh, turn it back over to you. Uh, we have a client uh, who uh, knew they wanted to make a transformational project um, over the next five years, and because most of the funding for nonprofits and charities are program marked, right? They're, they're marked to be spent on program. They went through a protracted effort of, of being able to build a grant around building the institutional capacity. And, and, and it certainly wasn't uh, the easy thing to do, but they were able to get quite a larger grant to be able to do that. Um, so I think the, the message that I received from that, and I would encourage anybody, is that you, you, you really are investing in your programs and your clients. Um, and your outcomes when you're investing in technology and your people. And I think making that business case uh, is something that I would encourage you to do more and to, to make your funders understand why it's important you have to invest in yourself. Um, maybe any comments on, on that conversation with your funders and, or with your board? I, I, think it's a, I, think, I think it's a tough one. I mean, you know, I haven't been in the charitable space long enough to understand all the reasons why Charities do not invest more into themselves and their capacity to learn, to you know, become more technology savvy, to understand you know, how to uh, behave and start thinking differently. I think that's so entrenched and it's a different topic. Um, when we meet with smaller, I mean obviously we try to do a lot to uh, bring a platform uh, that already has some baked in best practices in conversion and uh, um, you know we do a lot like starting simple I think for me I mean to be honest when I look at even like so many of the websites of smaller charities I really even just wish that that homepage is optimized and the donate now button is somewhere where it's supposed to be and I'm just being very practical so we start there we start with you know, fundamentals on, you know, Google Analytics setup and understanding the full funnel and understanding the world of donor, online donor acquisition and retention and how to potentially set that up for scaling. So we start modestly. Uh, we taught a data literacy workshop across Ontario. We had literally hundreds and hundreds of charities attend. And again, it, there is always this second issue, right, which is that, yes, we want uh, we don't have money, you know, the board won't let us, we can't invest into ourselves, and, and that I don't understand. I think possibly, uh, you know, you guys will have a better insight in yeah. that because you, I mean, you're part of a really huge charity, which, yeah. but you may have a, a better insight. I could turn on that one. Um, prior to CRM, we, um, from a resource point of view, when we put in our finance system um, a while ago, we actually took existing staff 
and had them be more of the project leads and then backfill their day-to-day -day jobs. And so you, instead of having to go out and, and hire to fill a project, you used ongoing people full-time to attach themselves to the project. As well, uh, having an, an HR department and or whoever is helping with, with your attraction of resources to have a, a nimbleness around them where they know, so you're not bogged down in a, a hiring process that enables you to lose people quickly to other opportunities that come out because as, as somebody mentioned earlier that the market is very tight for the, the, the people that are good for this and right. that would be able to help you implement in, a, in an appropriate manner. Number one for me, you've got to have an advocate on your board. Mm -hmm. So the vice chair of our board <coughs> is the ex-head of marketing for Facebook here in Canada. When I go to the board and I talk about the need to be donor-centric and to know our donors and be able to get the data in one place and data mine, she goes, I get it, no question. That's our future. That's how we're gonna grow the organization. That's how we're gonna get that competitive advantage right. you talked about. So you need a board advocate or advocates that are going to help you move the charity through a digital transformation. And we don't just have one on our board, we have a number of, of individuals that have said, this is why it's important for me. I mean, I'm sure your boards, you have lots of people that are very passionate about the mission and they're great advocates for the mission of what your organization does. Well, you need to be able to get those people that are passionate about the operations of the organization as well and can see where the future is going and bring that industry knowledge to the table. You briefly touched upon this, Liz, during the market presentation about the role of finance in particular. Um, because it's interesting, uh, previous in my previous life, IT has had a very large role with respect to these kind of projects. But I've found in the nonprofit and social impact space that finance is often the leader, the lead champion in these in these uh, projects. And I'm wondering, was that your experience and, and, and how and why was that the case? To be honest, I don't know if this is a personal thing, but I was very excited when hearing about this. It's like, let me in. Like, I want to be in and be part of this, just because we do have all the um, the, the compliance things we wanted, and it's also cool, right? It's 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 fun, and you want to be able to embrace the change and, and make sure you're at the table so that you, you're you're there every step of the way for any decision making and design. So. Yeah, I, I agree I, it's fun, but only a CPA would think GL set up is fun. <laughs> <you know. laughs> I, I don't think I'm alone here. It's a special breed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, when they get into that mapping the chart of accounts to the CRM accounts, that's where I go, you know what, guys? Have a great afternoon. Yeah. And I, I walk I, out of the room. No, but, but what's funny about this is that, uh, like, you know, this is a bit of a, uh, I'm borrowing an expression, but the buck does stop in finance, right? You, you're, you, all the data that you're trying to bring back to decision making is ending up in your chart of accounts. Mm -hmm. And, and so then finance is the natural place to be able to provide um, the use case and the benefit of why we need this data to make better decisions. So that's, that's excellent. Um, so maybe just turning to another question and before I take a final poll. But, but for um, looking back, uh, either at your own digital transformation project or others, what would you do differently? What advice would you give the audience about um, maybe things you would you definitely Can I do that and then you guys go. Um, the one thing I'm going to just, what we just talked about, this chart of accounts, we had a, a complicated chart, we still do, um, that was designed post unification as all the provinces came together and made a uniform chart of accounts that would cover a, a multitude of scenarios for management reporting. Hmm. And then came this, this beast called CRM with the way we needed to deal with donors and it was round peg square hole. And um, if and Mark and I have had many conversations about this, if we were starting from scratch, that would be the best thing. Putting in a, a, a financial system, designing a chart, as at the same time we're putting in a, a constituent system, so that we could make them talk and marry up right away. Uh, and we'll get there um, at some point, but that'll be another project that we can roll up our sleeves on. So gotcha. that's what I would do. Dedicated resources. This is not a side of the desk type project. Yes, you've got some people that will continue to do some day jobs that are, that are involved in the project. When it comes to things like project management, data transformation, and so on, you can't expect the same people that are running your annual tax receipts to be the ones that are actually implementing the system because something is always going to be put aside. You know, we delivered our project on budget, on time, on scope. And that was only because we put the resources in to be able to do that. And I already mentioned communications. The one thing I've learned from doing CRM multiple times over in multiple organizations 
is get either dedicated time with someone in your communications team or what we did at Heart and Stroke, we hired in an independent consultant for two days a week to do communications on the project who reported through to the communications team, but they kept the flow going with management, with the end users, um, even sometimes with the, uh, with the vendor. I, th I think the single biggest opportunity that I've seen missed in projects with this is, is communications. Um, not taking the, the person into account and the change that they're going through Absolutely. and making sure they're informed because you're often dealing with standalone systems sometimes previously um, or where there's uh, uh, technocratic knowledge of how to use a certain process and system and people don't like letting go of that. I mean, moving into a system, into a process that's different and change that means that um, my loss and shared expertise sometimes is or my unique expertise is sometimes lost and I have to learn a new system. So there's a lot of uh, anxiety around that. Right, I call it moving from the what to the why. We've got lots of people in our organizations, they know exactly what they do. And they can tell you what they do. I take this, I do that with it, and then I pass it over to my, to my next colleague. And then you start to dig into, well, why do you do it that way? Well, because somebody trained me 15 years ago and that's what we do. And they don't know what the downstream process actually is. So when you do that step back when you're implementing the system, ERP, HRS, CRM, that's the point where you actually go, you know these 17 things that you're doing? We could actually probably do it in three, in three steps. And here's why you're going to do it that way. Here's what the end result actually is. But in your experience, Marina, anything you would do differently? Well, I think, well, I mean, for sure, I think um, when the disruption started in the media space, a whole bunch of smart people, senior people, were really dismissive of what's going on. So I think, in retrospect, I would have been more humble and understanding the change that is coming, I, I would treat it with more respect, for sure. Um, I think, um, you know, I would have been more pa patient with some of the things. I mean, at the end of the day, I really agree with, I think Mark made this point, that this is a lot about learning how to learn differently. It's about learning how to see things differently. It's not about implementing a technology platform, because if you drop it anywhere in itself, it's not the end, uh, and it's not going to be, uh, it, it's not the end of, um, it's not a purpose of what you're doing. So I think the human resources aspect, meaning the skill sets, the knowledge, the organizational structures, uh, breaking, being courageous enough to question your own status quo, uh, to ask tough questions, to uh, challenge your sacred cows and look at how things could be differently. And again, um, my experience with media, we were all there. We could not envision that you know, people will be reading on the internet and advertisers will go and put ads there. It was so inconceivable. So I learned to be humble um, and to you know, not underestimate uh, definitely the changes that are coming and that are, um, you know, change doesn't care what the incumbent thinks about it. You can hate it. <laughs> all you want. It's not going to stop it. So It's inevitable. Yeah. Our chief marketing officer said he had a boss once that said there's two types of people. Those who embrace the change and love the change and those who will learn to love the change. <laughs> <laughs> Only those two options. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the planning horizon. So like, how long did this project take you and, and, and how long did you think it would take you? Interesting. Um, so Ever since unification to Heart and Stroke back in 2011, which was long before I joined, I joined in 2015, um, they talked about this. Oh, we've, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. But of course, other priorities got in the way, and it wasn't until uh, the uh, 2016 budget year where they actually set budget aside and convinced the board that they were actually going to move forward with this and hired me into the organization at the time as the first CIO level um, individual on the, on the senior team. So there was, there was probably a good four years of talking about it, about 12 months of good, strong, we need to get some budget for it. And then when we hit go in September 2015, the first year, well, sorry, first three months was contract negotiation with, with the vendor, running an RFP, choosing a vendor, contract negotiations. Legal took a couple of months to then get done after that. We then took uh, 12 months of no implementation. So literally it was planning. It was process mapping, it was figuring things out, how does it map to the charts, et cetera. And then we started to roll out. And because we had to roll out multiple databases, or convert multiple databases and then roll out in each provinces, 
Uh, it took us about 18 months to do that. So we completed basically in January of this year. So really two months of implementation, or sorry, two years of implementation, 18 months of pure rollout, and six to nine months of pure planning off the top of it. And did you expect to take it that long? Absolutely. That was, that was the timeline I actually laid down for the organization. And you know what? It's better to do it faster than slower. Um, it, it can drag on. You know, yeah. people don't see the progress. You need to get those early wins and be able to, you know, get the momentum. And of course, that, it creates problems for the finance team because now, well, we're coming from 33 databases, so it didn't create a huge problem that we eliminated four, but there was one new one over here. Mm -hmm. The reality was everybody wanted to get to Nirvana as soon as they could, so they had reporting out of one solution. So the tax receipts were coming out of one solution and so on. But yeah, I mean, it, it, faster would have been better. Yeah. Um, and I was asked by my CEO, can we do it faster? If I put X amount of dollars into the pot, could we do it? I said, for that amount, we could probably shave off one, maybe two months. It's not worth it. You're better to keep the team and just keep going. So I would say that's a refreshing perspective because I can't tell you how many times I've been um, uh, talking to someone. Oh, we're going to do this in the next eight to twelve months. Uh, yeah. It will be start to finish. And it's twenty-four months afterwards. Well, exactly. Right? And so a lot of what we do is end up educating on on really what the, that yeah. planning process should be. And um, as you go in through the, the small organizations in particular, helping them figure out what bite-sized chunks you might be able to tackle, because. They're, especially with medium-sized, small organizations, the attrition of board mem members and executives and, and volunteers that are helping you do the project causes a continuity challenge of the program this long. Yeah. Um, and so, have you seen any, any successful ways people mitigate that change, Marina? Like, how can they handle the knowledge transfer that's required? Because likely these projects are often outlasting yeah. an executive director. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's very slow. Well, I mean, being deliberate about it and planning would help, for sure. Um, often you find out that people are gone and nobody else knows anything about what they were doing. So mm -hmm. I, think, uh, I think in small organizations, definitely, um, yeah, just putting more planning around it would, I think, be useful, yeah. for sure. Right. And your governance structures as well, yeah. right? Making sure that you've got a reporting structure. Yeah. We reported to the board on this project in the beginning, um, as we're going through the planning phase, every quarter, board yeah. meets four times a year. So they got it at every meeting. We then moved it to semi-annually so that they were getting a report on it every six months. And they get their final report in March of this year that says, here's how much you gave us. This is what you asked us to do. This is what we delivered on. Oh, and by the way, we'd like to enhance more for the future. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, here's, here's an envelope we'd like for next year. Pre-warning. Pre you're, you're not inviting too much scope creep in an 18 to 24 month project, are no, you? No, that's, that's it. <laughs> you, it's, you've got to be firm, right? yeah. and that's what your project manager does. That's very, very good advice. You know, let, let's take maybe a moment to the last poll for a second, now that you've been completely uh, educated on the digital transformation project. We're going to ask you if you think you're ready to take one on. Um, as, a, as an organization, so take a moment for that, please. Mm. Mm. That's good. That is good. Most of you are almost there. Almost uh, I'm curious to hear what the, what the gap would be at some point, maybe on the break. <laughs> Come down. Uh, or actually during questions, because I think that's one thing I'd like to turn now to. We have a, a, but less than 10 minutes left in the session, so I, I encourage you to ask any questions. There are microphones, um, number two and number one. If you don't mind going to one of them, um, if you have questions, just so we can make sure we, we hear it. Okay. Oh, okay. Great. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much uh, for the great discussion. Uh, my name is Shelley Mayer, and I run a social impact branding and marketing agency. We work with a lot of federated organizations, and this topic is um, extremely difficult for many of them. So I have a two-part question. One, um, you did the unification first and then moved into this. So thinking about advice you might give to organizations that haven't gone through that unification process and you know, may never because of the way their governance is structured, uh, number one. And then sort of related to that, I think what happens in these types of organizations with a um, national entity that can be very large and have resources um, trying to hit up against uh, smaller local offices that don't necessarily have the um, know-how, resources, expertise to accept the change, which is part of the change management question. So I guess when there's that technology disparity in the organization, um, how might that uh, be addressed? 
So on the, on the first part of that, which is really about how do you deliver a service nationally to organizations that may not be fully integrated yet. They may have different governance structures, they may have different processes and so on. The way Heart and Stroke dealt with that um, through unification was even though a lot of the political questions were still being asked, like do we need boards at the local level or do we just need one national board? You know, will fundraising still be initiated at the local level or does all that come out of a central office? The areas that, that the organizations agreed to work together on was sort of in that shared services area. So the finance area, the IT area, the human resources area. Am I missing any, Lise? Uh, um, no, I think operations. Operation, the operations area, which for us is, is um, purchasing and yeah. logistics. So we already had buy-in to say, you know what, it doesn't make sense for each of the individual entities to run their own email system. I mean, when I walked in in 2015, we had 12 different email systems across mm -hmm. the country, right? And some of them didn't talk to each other. It's like we're one heart and stroke. We moved everything to Office 365. Today our email costs us absolutely nothing. And people started to see through those projects. Yeah, that, this actually makes a lot of sense. Why am I going to do this locally? But we left resources across the country. We didn't say, then put them all in Toronto. Because there would have been a very negative reaction to obviously doing that. So we left resources. And we didn't do Ontario as our first CRM project either. We said, which province looks like they're ready and can be a champion for taking on the, right. the project? We chose British Columbia as our first one. Again, it was about being able to embrace. So, you know, changing that, maybe all the governance isn't there, and we would say our governance is pretty close to being there at this point in time, but it, it's building that trust through being able to have those, uh, those shared services that actually work. No, it's just, and I don't know if part of your question centered around um, the consolidation of something like the chart or something like the, the infrastructure around the support services. And um, that, as, as I mentioned, that's one thing we would do differently is uh, after unification and starting this project, we would have probably looked at something that was more holistic and, and able to feed each other right at the get-go instead of looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, and especially if you're a small office, yeah. I mean, you don't have the capacity to, you know, think about the IT challenges and the HR challenges and everything else. I mean, that's why good federated structures that are well, well set up make a lot of sense and are cost-effective in what they're able to do. So, you know, it's, it's about that planning and about building that trust and that reach out. Hopefully that helps. So we'll move to an online question now. Sorry, I, I just don't yeah. want them to get forgotten in the mix. Uh, one that you can actually vote on the app on what questions you like, which is very helpful. So a number of people have voted on, and maybe we can get this on the screen if possible. As we build customized stakeholder management, uh, how does privacy legislation come into play, or is that a whole other ballgame? And this is where the lawyers in the room should all jump up at this point and say, hold on a minute. There's a lot we need to do around this. It's about making sure that we're asking for permission, no question. So anytime that you've got that online form that someone's filling out, the privacy um, information is there. There's information on the form on how this information will actually be used. I know we're asking all the time for information from our constituents. Chances are we're, we're using about one-tenth of it. One of the things we integrated in Heart and Stroke is we have a central um, privacy person, which I'm sure most of you now have. But as an application comes to them for acquiring new data, her first question is, why? And what are you going to do with this data to make sure that it's actually legitimate use that's actually going to occur? So, you know, vetting it, vetting it through your legal team. We're large enough to luckily have in-house counsel. I'm sure some of you work with external counsel on this. Um, it's being able to set those parameters when you're, when you're capturing that data so that you're making sure you get permission. I mean, we've got data going back and back and back. We've had to go out and re-ask permission on a lot of stuff. We have a million people a year that take our resuscitation programs across the country, learning CPR and AED use. Well, nobody asked them in the past, you know, would you like to learn more about heart and stroke? Would you consider making a donation to us? Can we actually reach out to you with marketing materials? Nobody asked. So we've got data sitting there that we can't actually reach out to individuals unless we match them up in the database and say, oh, by the way, they're already donating to us as well. Great. So, you know, we're still going through that process of make sure that we're asking permission up front. And anytime we do an IT project now where we're gathering data, it's that process of working with legal to make sure we've got the right permissions in place. I would also add to make sure that you are selecting or being recommended to select solutions that are compliant, um, that um, are treating PII or personally identified information uh, per compliance laws. 
Um, and in many cases, for a medium uh, or smaller nonprofit, that's a cloud-based solution because of the ability to be able to store that um, in a larger trust ecosystem. So, so I think that the, the key is to make sure that you're working with solutions that are going to take care of that on your behalf um, um, more often than not. And, and I, that you can say, even with permission, I'm treating your data with respect. Yep. Next question. Yeah, we're a few minutes over, so we'll do one more online and then just try to see if we can get one more in the room. Uh, a couple of people are interested in knowing more about engagement. Is there any tips or strategies that you would have for motivating people, especially volunteers, uh, to participate in this? Really? Do you want to start? Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys probably have a more direct experience with, with that, but uh, again, I think the online is a great uh, channel for that. Uh, uh, social media, this is where those channels really shine in their ability to, well, in the charity's ability to, to distribute content, to really leverage their stories, their assets, the best things that they have, and they have like amazing content. Um, so I would definitely think that that would be, you know, one of the strategies. I, I wanted to add something on the donor privacy thing. I think this is actually, I realized this a few months ago when we went through like a huge um, process of, of re-looking at everything we're doing with that respect. And I worked with uh, one of the top Canadian data privacy lawyers. And he said to me, he said, you know, Marina, you have to change your mindset and you have to stop thinking about anyone owning donor data. Donors own donor data. Nobody does. And this is really where the wind is blowing from Europe and also in Canada with some of the upcoming uh, the thinking about it. So I think we all will have to shift that and not talk about, well, we own this data. No, we don't. Donors own the data, right? So it's like a whole different world out there that I think it's, it's coming and it's, it's driven by the European legislation, but it's coming here as well. So that's a big, that's a big yeah. change. The biggest thing and I personally for. like it because I don't want anyone to own my data, not an e-commerce company, not Facebook, not a charity, nobody, right? I should be owning my data. Right. The biggest thing about um, volunteer engagement um, and it's the same as donor engagement, it's about relationships. And for us at Heart and Stroke, and you know, we we're just talking about federated structure and smaller organizations um, across the country that may not have the capability to do big IT projects, but you know what they're really good at? Building those relationships in the local community. So being able to make sure that the system is set up in a way that can record the preferences of, you know, does that volunteer actually like to go out and do door-to-door -door canvas? Or do they like to come in and stuff envelopes? Or print tax receipts? Or we have volunteers in Winnipeg that go in and do pre-searches on donors that have made donation and encode um, donation forms with the ID numbers on it. Like, there's such a range. So we're making sure that that information is being recorded and those relationships are really held at the local level. Then. Other time for questions or are we done? Does anyone in the room have a question? Okay. Transformation that we're talking about is not just going to allow for better data and allow them to make better decisions, but to make decisions in real time. Mm -hmm. That's something that I always think of as a for profit mindset. How does the not for profit sector leverage this when you've got a board in place for here more often than not? We're all doing that's a really good ad, and I would say data visualization um, and reporting and analytics that come from the transformational projects that you're putting in your organization is often how you're able to get real-time access to that data and make real-time decisions. Uh, I think it, the part of the problem with previous standalone uh, offerings is that the data is trapped, right? Um, or you're not providing it through portals to your end users and employees and the volunteer base. I mean, I think one of the questions earlier was about engagement, and, and I think the way to engage them is to give them access to the data that the organization has in a way that is visually interesting to their objectives within the employee base. It's about moving your data, which now, if you're doing annual reporting to your board, you're looking in the rearview mirror always, right? Yes. You're looking back at what's happened. Um, I used auto racing as an example off the top. McLaren. Everybody know McLaren? Mm. Car racing company, F1. Um, located outside Woking in the UK, lived there for a year, met the CIO at McLaren, and I said, you're an auto racing company. 
He said, we are not. We are a data company. We know that when an F1 car goes into a corner, based on all the data that we're collecting as it goes in, how that car will come out of the corner. And we know how to get a tenth of a second off by changing parameters as that car actually goes in. So what they're looking at is leading indicators. If I do something here, this is what's going to happen at the other side. That's where we've got to get to in not-for-profits. We do it crudely in, at Heart and Stroke, and you may do it in your organization. If I get X amount of participants signed up for an event, I know then, as a result, I'll have this many donors, and based on my average donation amount, this is where I should end up. And, uh-oh, I haven't reached one, and two, my average donation's gone down, I'm in trouble. There's a leading indicator in moving to that. That's where we're going to get to. And um, integrated digital systems, that's what allows us to do it. Thank you for listening to the final episode of the Innovation, Change, and Leadership Presentations from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series.